And I'm going to start off in verse 14 through 18, and then I'll jump down to verse 37. So verse 14. It says, But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them, and he said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And in verse 37, he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. God, we again just thank you that we have uh, just this, this blessed privilege of getting to just come together as the body of Christ and open your word together. And I just pray that we would uh, just be encouraged in the truth, or that we would see Jesus uh, and that our, our faith would be strengthened, our hope would be set, uh, and that you would be exalted. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that your word is living and that you use it uh, to show us yourself and you reveal yourself to us through the words that you've written, that you've spoken. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So I, I thought it might be a good idea since we have quite a few... Uh, newer people that have joined us in the last six months, and we're just thankful to the Lord for that. Uh, I would just take a minute to introduce myself in case you don't know who I am. So my name is John, uh, John Forrest, and I work at His Hill Bible School, and Charlie, who is usually up here preaching, uh, he's the director there at His Hill, so he's my boss, so he tells me what to do every day, Uh, and it's great. Um, But I'm the principal there, and so I help with the teaching for the Bible School. It's a gap year program, and then we have a summer camp. Uh, during the summertime, you heard mention during the announcements, his Hill Ranch Camp. And so a lot of this crowd on this side are our counselors and our summer staff there helping out with our camp. And so, so yeah, that's, that's who I am. Uh, and every time Charlie asks me if I can fill in for him, uh, I am inclined to say yes. And then a couple weeks later, I'm like, what was I thinking? Why did I say yes? Uh, but, but I'm always privileged and grateful uh, as, as I get to look at the Word and preparing, just grateful for the opportunity to be able to share with you guys. Uh, so in John chapter 7, I'm, <clears throat> I want to look at verses 1 through 39, not every verse, uh, but I didn't want to read the entire section there because it was a little longer. Uh, but we're going to start in verse 1 and just thinking about some of the context of this passage. And the two passages that we read, we'll, we'll sit on those probably the longest. Uh, but just a little bit of background here. As 
Jesus begins this section. He has just finished in John chapter 6 talking about how he is the bread of life. Uh, and that was a very controversial story that he shares. Uh, he feeds the 5,000 or 10,000 plus people, and then they want to make him king, and he travels across the Sea of Galilee, and he's like, I'm not going to be your king. And they follow him, uh, and they are really excited about him, and he tells them, the only reason you're following me is because I gave you free food, uh, because we still do that today, you know? And I think when Chick-fil-A, they used to offer free Chick-fil-A for a year if you camped out at one of their stores when they first opened, and people would travel around the country camping at Chick-fil-A so they could get free food for a year. Uh, because some things never change. We still love free stuff. Uh, and so these guys are following Jesus, trying to find him because they want more free food. And Jesus responds and he says, the only way you can have food that's really going to satisfy you is if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood. And they're a little put off by that and they're like, that doesn't sound enjoyable. So we're not going to do that. Uh, and it says many of his disciples at that point, his followers, not the 12, but his other followers, they left him. They said, we're not willing to depend on Jesus in the same way that we depend on food. That that is just too much faith put in one person. And so they, they left. And so now some time has gone by and Jesus is about to go down to the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7. And the in the Jewish calendar, there were seven feasts, three main feasts that all of the Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem for every year. It was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And Tabernacles was to commemorate when they were in the wilderness, uh, in the time of Moses, they had wandered around for 40 years, and they lived in tents. And so in the Feast of Tabernacles, they're remembering this is what our forefathers had to do. They had to live in tents during the time of their wanderings, but now we don't have to do that anymore. So for a week, they would build a little tent or a little tabernacle, and they would live in it, sleep in it. Uh, but then the rest of the time, they, got to, they were reminded of how much they appreciate their home. Uh, and we can, we can resonate with that. If Whenever you go on a trip, there's just no place like home. Uh, my family and I, we went camping the other week in June, not sure why, uh, and we were really excited about when we got home. Our home was very comfortable. We're more grateful for it after tabernacling for a few days. Uh, and so, so this is, this is what the feast was. Uh, and the other side of it, because it also has some other, other names, the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Harvest. And so Pentecost would happen at the end of spring, beginning of summer. Uh, and that was a feast of the first fruits. So the first fruit of your harvest, that's what it was celebrating. God has given us another year of harvest, and we see the beginnings of that. But then the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering, was the feast celebrating the final harvest for the season. So they had their first harvest in the beginning of the year, in the beginning of the summer, and then they had their last harvest in September or October, and they had a feast on both ends. And so this is representative. The Lord instituted these feasts, and we can see how they, how they reflect or how they point to the reality of the new covenant in Christ. And at the Feast of Pentecost, literally at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit descends upon them as the first fruits of the new covenant. 
of those who are putting their faith in Christ after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there is this new first harvest under the new covenant. And then tabernacles is pointing to the reality that one day there's going to be a final ingathering, a final harvest, when Christ returns and he gathers all of his people to himself. And so these two feasts are the bookends of what God has, has done, what he's going to do. And so that's just some background there. Jesus is about to travel to Jerusalem for this feast, this feast that is commemorating their time of wandering in the wilderness, and then also this ingathering, this feast of harvest. And the, the Jewish leaders, they want to kill him. Um, it's interesting that initially, in verse 1 here, it says, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, which is northern Israel, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But later on in John chapter 11, uh, I'm not going to turn there, but in John chapter 11, there's a story of a guy named Lazarus, and he gets really sick. He's about to die, and Jesus is not in the region of Judea where Lazarus is. And his disciples, or word comes to Jesus, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick, won't you come heal him? And Jesus uh, is talking to his disciples about it, and his disciples say, Jesus, we shouldn't go because they want to kill you. The Jews do in that region. If you go there, we might die. So they discourage him from going because he might die. But Jesus goes anyway, even though there's that threat. But here, again, it says that he is unwilling to go to Judea yet because they're seeking to kill him. But again, still, Jesus is going to go anyway later on. And so Jesus ends up going to the feast. But beforehand, he's talking with his, his blood relatives, his brothers, half-brothers, in verse 3, says his brothers, they said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers were believing in him. So this seems to be an exchange that when, in my mind, it seems like they're, they're kind of critical towards Christ, and they're saying, listen, if you're really who you're saying you are, then you should want to go have a big presence in Jerusalem. Everyone's going to be there. It's the feast. So everyone's going to be there, and you can do your great signs and your miracles. That way lots of people can believe in you. If you're really the Christ, if you're really who you say you are, wouldn't you want that big publicity? And in verse 5, it's that interesting statement where he says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And that of all the things that could be recorded here about his brothers, it includes this statement about how they view Jesus. Because this is the most important thing about them. What do they think about Jesus? What do they do with Christ? And... They don't believe, and we think, well, why not? Like, what could be more convincing than having a sinless sibling? Maybe more frustrating, too. That would be difficult. But they, they have grown up with Jesus, and they've seen him conduct himself for 30-some years, and they still refuse to acknowledge that he is sinless, that he is the Messiah, that he's the Savior. 
their experience, you would think, would give credence to their belief. Based on what they've observed in his life, it would seem clear, at least to us, I wasn't there, but to me, it would seem clear that there's something unique about their half-brother Jesus. Why wouldn't they believe? I think it's just telling that our experience can encourage our belief, but it can't create it. And that belief is not primarily related to our experience, but it's primarily related to our heart. That I can have lots of experiences, but they can't generate faith. Just because they'd observe Jesus doesn't mean that they're going to believe in him. So many times that Jesus is healing people and he makes comments about their faith. He says, do you believe? And they believe. And then he heals them. Or when he's in the town of Nazareth and he says, I can't do many miracles in this town because of their unbelief. Even though there may have been other miracles taking place. And so the, the faith preceded the miracle. But we often want it to be the other way around and think, if something happened, then it would allow me to believe. I'd be willing to believe if I could observe as an eyewitness some great event. But faith does not, pre, or faith does precede experience. It's not based on it. In Hebrews chapter 12, thinking about faith, where does faith come from? He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. That faith is not rooted in an experience, but it's rooted in a person. That Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And... This is why we just have to be careful. I know I have to be so careful that when I have situations where I am struggling to trust Christ, that I don't run to something to try to generate more faith. I'm wrestling and trusting the Lord in areas, so I go try to find a book on it to generate faith. Or I need to listen to a sermon about it. Or I need even to go... Pray, and if I pray, then that will generate faith. And we think, what is it that I need to do in order to generate more faith? My, my family, we had a dairy farm in South Carolina when I was in, in high school. And South Carolina's climate is similar to Texas, just a lot more humid. Uh, and <clears throat> we don't get snow, hardly ever. And one year, we had this really bad ice storm. Uh, and it was... It lasted for almost a whole week, kind of like that snowstorm we had this past year in Texas. Uh, we had this really bad ice storm in South Carolina. Everything shut down. Uh, so not getting to go to school meant I got to stay at home and work all day on the farm in the freezing weather. It was great. I was so grateful. Um, and, and during the ice storm, the power went out on our farm. And we had about 200 cows. Uh, and so we're not going to hand milk these 200 cows. But if you don't milk them, then bad things happen. Uh, and so we had to figure out how to milk these cows. We have to have electricity. And so we start looking around and say, where can it come from? And so we got this huge generator. We had to rent it from this company, and it came in on this huge trailer. And this thing was like the size of a small house. 
Uh, and it came in, and that thing ran for about a week at our farm so that we could power the, the farm to be able to milk these dairy cows. And I think so oftentimes what happens is we find ourselves in some ice storm. We start looking around saying, where's the generator? I know that in my, in my walk, my daily walk, I can trust in Christ, but then extreme circumstances happen, and I start looking around saying, okay, what's the backup plan? Jesus was great for the day today, but now I need something more. And the reality is that the source never changes, despite how tempting it is to think I need to find life from extra sources in times of extreme hardship, in times of discouragement, in times of doubt. I need to find another source, a backup plan. And yet, that is not what the Lord has called us to. Instead, that the one who's always supplied in the past is the one who always supplies in the future and in the present. That I don't need to resort to finding additional sources to encourage my faith, but rather I keep coming back to the one who is a source of my faith. In Galatians chapter 3, and verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is all throughout Scripture, that our faith is to continue to be in the same person in every situation and in every season. And so Jesus is discouraged, or he has this conversation with his brothers about going to the feast, and they are not believing. For whatever reasons, uh, they're not believing, despite having a front row seat for maybe 20, 30 years of watching the way Jesus carries himself. Because our experience is not what generates faith. We keep coming back to Jesus. And so then Jesus gets to the feast. He ends up going. uh, And some of his initial teachings here in in verse 12, the the crowds, they're looking for him because he doesn't come right away. And I'll start in verse 11. He says, so the Jews, they were seeking him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him, and some were saying, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And it's interesting that people were complaining about Jesus then, and they still complain about Jesus now, that people were complaining about Jesus for 2,000 years. And so that's not going to go away. Like, it's just something we have to recognize And it's the reality. Um, And that Christ is divisive. Light and darkness. There's distinction there. And so Jesus is going to be divisive between those who consider him to be legitimate and true and the source of life versus those who cast him aside and say, Jesus has no place in my life. That Jesus is a point of division for people. But Jesus is not to be divisive in the body of Christ. 
But rather in the church, Jesus is the one who unifies us. It's in Christ that we have unity, that we enjoy fellowship. And so while in the world, Jesus is divisive between us and the world, that in the church, Jesus is our unity. He's the one who joins us together. And he goes on in verse 15. It says, the Jews then, they were astonished, saying, how has this man... Oh, sorry, I should back up. Verse 14, let me start there. When it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews then, they were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and he said, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. And when he starts teaching, it's interesting to see that the people's initial response They aren't first surprised that Jesus showed up in public, even though there's people that want to kill him. Instead, they're shocked at how well he can articulate the things that he's getting across. They're surprised at the way that he's able to teach. That's some kind of teaching. Uh, it, It shocks them. And they're surprised that he knows what he's talking about, even though he's never been educated. And it's important that we, as believers, just recognize the obvious reality that Jesus knows what he's talking about. That Jesus, as he leads us, he knows what he's talking about. As he gives us his word, Jesus knows what he's talking about. And we can... can, project on him, no, Lord, listen, like, Jesus walked 2,000 years ago, and they didn't have technology and social media, and so it's a different world now. So I know you said things about how the Christians should walk with you in, in your word, but life is really different now than it was then. And yet, Jesus spoke these words here in his word, and he knew what he was talking about. We don't need to shortchange him on his word and say, no, that was for a different time. Despite how often that's a response that people give about holding fast to the word of God. That was for a different time. We've moved on from that. He says, no. Jesus, when he says these things, when he records these things, he knows what he's saying. And despite their being astonished at the way that he's able to articulate and, and communicate with them, uh, he is, he's very clear. I remember a former student at his hill one time, he had gone on to seminary, and I was having a conversation with him, and he was sharing how he was having a meal with some of his professors one time, and they were all joking about how when they first started teaching in seminary, they would be lecturing, and they have a student raise their hand, asked a question, and the professor wasn't really sure what the best answer was. So they would just shoot from the hip, and they would give an answer and act like they knew what they were talking about. Uh, and the professors were joking because they were like, now we can't do that. Because if we give just an answer that we think might be kind of right, people look it up on Google in their classroom, and they, they check us out to make sure that we're saying the right things, that they're fact-checking all the time. And they're making sure their professors know what they're talking about. And we never have to do that with Christ. We never have to second guess what he said and say, are you sure? Despite Gideon's doing that. Despite Gideon saying, 
Are you sure I'm the guy that you want to do this? Are you sure that you want me to go into this battle? We don't need to second guess. He knows what he's saying. And so what is it that Jesus talks about? He said in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. Jesus doesn't take any credit for the things that he's saying, the things that he's teaching, but he acknowledges that he is simply a vessel, that he's communicating what's already been communicated to him. And in verse 17, he says, If anyone is willing to do his will, the one who sent him, then that person will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. He who speaks from himself is seeking his own glory. And Jesus makes a statement there and that key word is that preposition of from. He who speaks from himself. And he goes back to what is the source, the source of your speaking? Is the source of your speaking self or is it Christ? Is it the one who is equipped and enabled, the one who is sent? Christ came to revolutionize the source of our life. And that before Christ, we lived from ourselves and for ourselves. But Jesus says that the one who knows him is not living from self anymore. But rather we're called to live from Christ. So the results of that that transformation that Christ does in our hearts is a consequence of the source. The results are a consequence of where the source is coming from. And so you have a water supply that's giving lots of really good fresh water, then everything below that water supply is going to get good water. But if you pollute the source where the water starts from, then everything else that comes downriver is going to be corrupted. And so in the same way in our lives, in our, in our interactions with people and the decisions that we make, what is the source, the basis from which I am making decisions and interacting and responding to people? Is that stemming from and flowing from the person of Jesus in my life, or is it from self? And he says the source is always going to determine the outcome, the result. Everything that's coming from a source other than Jesus is going to be tainted. And that's why he says in verse 18, there is no unrighteousness in Jesus. So the things that come from him are things that are pure and right and good. And so a life that's lived surrendered to Christ is going to be a life that has an outflow of life, of Jesus being observed and seen and witnessed because Christ is being the source. Unless we're, we're speaking and we're living in faith in Christ, then everything else that comes out is corrupted with this self-glorification. Jesus said there in verse 17 or verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. So it's not just that, oops, I messed up, I spoke from myself rather than from Christ, but 
He says the, re- the reason behind that is you're seeking your own glory. Whether it's you're conscious of that or not, he says that's the reality. That anything done apart from the Spirit of Christ in us is done for self-glorification. It doesn't matter if that's that conscious self-glorification or not. Anything done apart from Christ is for myself. Even if it's a bunch of really seemingly good things. Things that have the appearance of being selfless. Things that have the appearance of being for others. We can't raise our hand and say, but Lord, I've used resources, I've used finances to serve and to bless and to help other people. He says, still, even our greatest acts of service done from self rather than from Christ are for the purpose of self-glorification. He doesn't leave any any wiggle room there. Uh, He's so clear. And we remember that Jesus knows what he's talking about. That as Jesus speaks, he knows what he's talking about. Any, he says, anyone who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And so the results, because we think about results a lot, but he says the results are measured by what the source is that leads to those results. It doesn't matter what the end result is in of itself, but rather it's the source. And, and we recognize this. How many times you go to a, a young child's sporting event and you ask them after the game, you know, maybe they had a really bad game and they lost, uh, and they're crying because they lost, and so I, I have four daughters, so I just associate young children with, yeah, anyways. Um, and so, so you have the sporting event, and they lose, and they're, they're really upset about it, and you come alongside them, and you ask the question, did you try your hardest? And they say, yeah. And then the parent will say, that's good. That's all you could do. You can't control the result, but you can only control your source. Did you put everything into it? And the, the results don't determine, the, the results are not the thing that we focus on, but it's what am I living from? And not, with that illustration, not saying we just try our hardest, but rather it's that commitment to Jesus being our source. And the results, how that plays out, that's totally up to him. That's his prerogative. But he calls us to come and rest. Let him be our source. The flesh is often results-oriented. And so this is, you know, we we are often results-driven. That the most efficient way must be clearly be the best way to do something. Uh, but God didn't get that memo when he, when he has sovereignly ruled over everything. What we determine to be efficient, you know, it doesn't usually line up with his determination of what is best and right and good. So the flesh is often results-oriented. The, the devil, when he tempts Eve, he tells her, hey, eat this fruit, and then there's going to be good result. So look at the result, don't look at the source. Don't look at the decision itself. The ends 
is what justifies the means. That's life according to the flesh. He says, but the end doesn't justify the means, but rather the way you get there is crucial. The source is what's most important. That am I living for my self-glorification or not? And we see this again with Moses. Uh, when he murders a man because he assumes that God's going to understand his good intentions, you know, Lord, isn't this what you're wanting me to do? And God said, no, you need to take 40 years in the wilderness uh, to, to go think about some of these things. You're not ready. Uh, it's not my time yet. And so the Lord is concerned about who we're drawing from. Ephesians chapter 20, not 20, there's not 20 chapters in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Thinking about where we are drawing our life from. Jesus keeps coming back to this. In Ephesians 3 verse 20 it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, So Jesus is able to do a lot. He says, far more than you or I can imagine. How does he do that? He says in verse 20, according to the power that works within us. So Jesus has placed his power in us and his spirit, and he can do far more than we can imagine based on that source of life. And what's it lead to? Verse 21, so to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. When Jesus is our source, then Jesus gets the glory. And this is why he says anything done from a different source is for my own glory. Anyone who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Christ is doing according to to Christ's power, and it results in Jesus being glorified. And so then the second half there, verse 18, back in John chapter 7, he says, But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And Jesus says that he is seeking the Father's glory. The one who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. And this is, uh, again, just something that is so contrary to, to the way that our flesh works, is to think that my goal is to see somebody else be exalted and lifted up. And in everything in my, my selfish heart says, no, it's really important how you end up, how I end up, how other people think about me my standing at the end. And our own glory creeps in there, and we want to seek our own. But he says, but the one, Jesus, who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, the Father, he, Jesus, is true. There's no unrighteousness in him. Jesus, in his righteousness, is not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the Father. That's what righteousness looks like. Righteousness is yielded to the will of the Father. 
And now Jesus takes up residence in the heart of the Christian. So Jesus came not to seek his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. And then Jesus comes to reside in the heart of the believer. Jesus does not change his prerogative. But still, in your life and in my life, his intent is to seek the glory of the Father through our lives. And the only way that that can happen is if there is righteousness. Because to myself, I'm going to be seeking my own glory. But if it's Christ living from my life, then I'll be seeking the Father's glory. Jesus will do that in me. And so that's what he's done now in our hearts. And he goes on in in this next section. I'm not going to read all these verses starting in verse 19. And he starts talking about Moses, uh, having given them the law. And Moses had, had healed a man earlier, and because of that, they wanted to kill Jesus because he had done the healing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has this conversation with them saying, listen, it's interesting that Moses came and he gave you the the law of circumcision. And he says, but Moses did not receive the law of circumcision. But Abraham received the law of circumcision, and he just passed down. Moses only gave what had been passed on to him from somebody else. And you don't have any issue with Moses, even though he was just giving what somebody else had given him. And Jesus says, but you have an issue with me, even though I'm just giving what somebody else has given me. I'm just speaking the words that the Father has given me to speak. And yet you have a lot of issue with me. And then he also contrasts and he says, and listen, circumcision is a really painful thing, but I healed somebody on the Sabbath. You're allowed to circumcise on the Sabbath, but you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. Healing is restoring life. He says, That's why he says in verse 24, so don't judge according to the appearance. He says that maybe it seems like you're really zealous for the Lord because you're so stuck on this not healing on the Sabbath because you can't do work on the Sabbath. He says, but don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And Jesus is encouraging them to recognize who he is. Uh, that just as Moses has received from Abraham, and they receive from Moses without issue, so Jesus has received from the Father, they should receive his word without issue. Uh, that he's only speaking that which was given to him. And there's, there's ironies and there's paradoxes in the Christian life, seeming paradoxes, uh, and, and one of those is the reality that there is so much freedom for the Christian when we recognize that we are slaves that when we recognize that we are servants of the Most High God, then we experience the greatest freedom. And that seems contrary to reason, that how can the idea of being a servant be the catalyst for the greatest experience of freedom? And uh, I think one... It's the the reality of just recognizing where our place is. As I understand my place, I enjoy greater freedom. So I was the camp director at His Hill for about seven years, and 
Last summer was the first summer that I wasn't, and that was a COVID summer, so it was a really weird summer. Things were different, and all of us were really busy. But this summer is different in that it's, it's a, a more normal summer for us at His Hill, and it's the first summer that I'm not camp director during a normal summer. And I, I'm learning my place. Like, well, what do I do? Because usually I'm extremely busy, and I'm not quite as extremely busy now, and it's great. I'm really enjoying that. Uh, but one of the first, first uh, weeks of camp, I was talking to Heather, my wife, and I said, you know what? It's, it's just kind of strange to me how just at rest my brain is. Like, I am not thinking about camp at all. You're welcome, Connor. Uh, I, am, I am just not thinking about anything. It's, it's great because I, I recognize that is not my realm. That is not my responsibility. I don't have to be overseeing that. And in our, in our lives with Christ, I think there's so much freedom when we recognize that we're servants because we realize we don't have all of the responsibility to make sure things go a certain way. But we're simply available to serve as the master leads us to serve. And so our hearts can know rest because we're servants and not just servants but we're also adopted in the family of God as sons and daughters so we have those great privileges but in the Christian life we enjoy freedom as we recognize our place as we're surrendered that I'm not seeking my own glory but just the glory of him who has come to reside in my heart. And so that means, too, as we come to learn our place in God's kingdom, as sons and daughters of God, that when there are situations where maybe it's with an, an unbeliever and there's rejection that takes place or hostility that takes place and the world is hostile towards the gospel and those things happen, then it doesn't get under my skin because I know my place. I'm just a servant preaching a message, and what's done with that is not my responsibility. It doesn't mean that there's apathy towards the response, but there's not responsibility on my part in the way that other people respond. I think of uh, there's a witness in a courtroom, and he's called into court to be able to give testimony to, to the events that he observed and the, the, the people that are asking him questions, they're asking him to, to recount the things that he witnessed and if his testimony doesn't line up with what they're hoping it's going to say, if their testimony undermines their arguments, then they're going to be upset with the witness. But guess what? That's not the witness's fault. That's just because they have their own agenda. But the witness is only there to speak about what he witnessed. He's free from carrying the burden of the results of it. He's just there speaking. In John 15, just a little bit later on in this book, Jesus is going to say in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. And he says that to his disciples to comfort them and say, 
listen, it's not your fault. If you're just my servants and my followers, my disciples, my friends, he says in John 15, and my brothers. And so that the crowds, they back in John 7, they're upset with Jesus as he keeps talking about who he is. Uh, they're arguing about where he's from. And he says very clearly that they know who sent him. Verse 28, he says, You both know me and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and, he's, and he sent me. And <clears throat> Jesus recognizes that he's been sent from someone else, from the Father. And in our lives as Christians, we, we get to recognize and enjoy that freedom of knowing I've just been sent. So the things that I'm called to do today are things that I've been sent to do according to the source of Christ's life in me. And I don't have to be anxious about those things because I'm just someone who's sent. Just like Jesus says, I only speak to things that the Father gives me to speak, so you can be upset with me, but it doesn't make sense because I'm just speaking the Father's word. So also, I can just do what the Lord has called me to do today, and people can be upset with that, or I can be anxious about that, but it doesn't make any sense for me to be anxious because I'm just walking in what the Father has called me to walk in. So we don't have to be anxious about those things. And, and then here at the end of this passage... This is a familiar passage here in verses 37 and 39. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, the feast lasted about seven days. Uh, and so on the last day, Jesus stood. And, and let me just give a little bit of context here. So there's, there were some traditions that they had set in place, and this wasn't set up in the Old Testament, but just as time went on, you know, in different holidays, we, have, we add different traditions uh, and so at the, the birth of Christ, you know, they didn't have Christmas trees. We just kind of added that somewhere along the way. And so with our holidays, we add traditions. And one of the traditions that they started to add to the Feast of Tabernacles was that on the last day, one historian that I read, he, he said that there would be two priests who would, they're, they're at the altar, and they would walk towards the eastern gate or the eastern entrance of the temple. And that symbolized they walked towards where the sun would usually rise, walking towards the sun. And then they would stop, and they would turn around, and they would face the altar in the temple. And they would proclaim and say, God, our forefathers turned, and this is back when God exiled them, our forefathers turned from you, and they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars like the, the other nations did. But we are focused and turned towards worshipping you. So they begin walking towards the sun, representing that the Israelites walked and worshipped other gods, and then they turn and they look at the altar and the temple, and they say, but our worship is towards you now, God. And at that point, on the last day of the feast, they would take water and they would pour it around the altar such that it would actually flow from the altar. And it looked like there was water flowing from the temple. And that's, that's what's about to take place or is taking place. We don't know at what point during any of that Jesus stands up and makes his proclamation, but it was surrounding that event, that last day. And Jesus says, thinking about this water that's 
flowing down from the temple or from the, the altar. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And they're standing there at the temple, seeing this water flowing. And Jesus says, the source of life, temple representing the presence of God and God's commitment to his people and living among his people. And Jesus says, I am the living water. I am the temple. Come to me and drink. And he says in verse 38, as the scripture said, and there's some some debate on what passage he's referencing there. Turn with me to Ezekiel 47. And some of the other passages, and I honestly am not 100% convinced of which scripture he's referencing and all the different things I read from other people, they all had varying opinions about it. Um, Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 44, both would be potential cross-references here in Ezekiel 47, and then we'll also look at Zechariah 14 in just a minute. But in Ezekiel 47, there's this interesting account where uh, thinking, and it's prophetic about end-time events, and Ezekiel sees this vision, and uh, he's brought about or led about by this, this angel, and he's showing him different parts of the temple. And it says in verse 3, When the man went out toward the east, think about the east, that direction there, from the temple, with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water. So there's water flowing from the temple. And it reached about my ankles. And it goes on, and he says, he goes a little farther, and the water reaches about my knees. And he goes a little further, and the water reaches about my, my hips or my, my thighs. Uh, and they, it, the waters just keep increasing. In verse 8, he says, Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region. They go down into the Araba. Then they go down toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. There will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And again, I think that he's talking about end times things there, when when the word of God has gone forth to the ends of the earth, and uh, that there's that great harvest thinking of tabernacle instead of feast of ingathering. But it's also, I believe, a sense of already and not yet that Jesus says currently still he is the living water. Come to me and drink, and all who come to the living water, they are made to live. Everything that that living water touches becomes fresh water in Ezekiel And Zechariah, I want to look at chapter 14, verse 8. He says, In that day, living waters 
will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Jesus says that he is the source of living water. Come to me and drink. And transformation happens. Life happens as we are drawing from this living water. And back in John chapter 7, finishing this section, he says in verse 39, thinking about this living water, because when Jesus says it here, this is why some commentators don't think he's talking about Ezekiel. Uh, or Zechariah, because those are clearly end times prophecies. But in verse 39, in chapter 7 of John, he says, These things Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this wasn't just when Jesus said, Come to me and drink and have living water. This isn't just something that Jesus is talking about happening one day in the very far distant future at the end of all things. But this is something that Jesus is saying is going to happen when the Spirit comes. And so today, he says, all who believed in him, in verse 38, he says, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of life are within your grasp in Christ. This is the life that God has designed for us to live. A life that is overflowing with living water. And he says the source of that is Christ. And so just a few brief closing, closing thoughts, just summarizing some of the stuff that, that we've talked about because it's been somewhat sporadic. Uh, but the, the theme that kept coming back coming up was this source. Um, and so just seven things here I'm just going to mention briefly and then, and then we'll close. Belief is not source in our experience, but in Christ. We don't need to run to a backup generator for, for faith. Secondly, Jesus is divisive between the church and the world, but Jesus is what unifies the church. And it's essential that we, thirdly, it's essential that we know, we recognize that Jesus knows what he's talking about. The flesh, fourthly, is results-oriented, but the spirit in the believer is Christ-oriented. Our flesh is results-oriented, but the spirit is Christ-oriented. The follower of Christ is to be sent in everything that he does. Uh, And number six, the one who knows his place is truly free. Knowing who I am in Christ, acknowledging his authority and his wisdom over me in all things, that is where freedom is found. And then finally, rivers of living water are always sourced in Jesus. And so, just pray that your hearts are encouraged to be reminded that Jesus is our good source, our abundant source. Let me pray. 
God, we, uh, we just thank you for these just precious truths, these, uh, these realities that are ours in Christ that you made so clear. And, and Lord, I think that's just one of the reasons why there is so much controversy in the things that you said, because uh, you were not confusing in what you said, but everyone understood uh, that the reality of what you were demanding. God, that we come to you for life. Uh, I just pray that in our lives we would not be living for our own glory, but the glory of the one who has is, who is sent the Son into the world. Lord, that uh, we would be living from Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.